I'm Dan. I'm Mike. So welcome back to 15 Minute Film Fanatics. You know how this works. Mike and I watch movies separately and talk about them on the show for the first time. Sometimes it's a Dan pick. Sometimes it's a Mike pick. This week is a Mike pick. We're going to be doing The Apartment, the great 1960 film directed by Billy Wilder, written by Billy Wilder and IAL Diamond. Um, I had not seen it in a very, very long time. Mike was urging it upon me for the podcast. So Mike, you're going to go first today. What's your overall take on the movie? This is one of the most charming movies uh, I've ever seen. It works on me every time. I've watched it a million times. It is simultaneously one of those movies that you want to impress upon somebody that wants to get into screenwriting. If somebody's interested in the ways in which you have audiences connect to characters, structure a film, up the ante, have that satisfying conclusion that nobody can seem to find, the apartment is it. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that any of that technique is on the surface. It's only there if you look for it. Otherwise, this is a super slick, you'll, you'll have too much fun connecting as an audience member to think about the ways in which it's working. Uh, but those are all there for your, for your observation. Uh, I absolutely love this movie and it's one of my top five favorite comedies of all time. Excellent, well said. You know, what's funny is that um, what struck me this time was how beautiful the music is. So much so that I, that I bought the album, not the CD, I bought the LP. So I can't wait till that arrives. I bought the LP of the apartment as soon as I was done watching it. Um, I, th I agree with you, it's, it's a perfectly written film. If you wanna study how to tell a story on screen, I don't think you can do worse than, or, or do better um, than watching the apartment. Something that occurred to me watching it though, which, was, which made me chuckle is that, you know, everybody knows Double Indemnity. Um, a couple of weeks ago, you were telling me we should do Double Indemnity for the show. This movie is as suspenseful as double indemnity. It has all the suspense of any, um, you know, well-written, you know, taught psychological thriller. When he says, I love you, Miss Kubelek, at the end, there's 20 seconds left in the movie. That's, that's how well done this is. He looks at her during the gin game and says, I love you, and there's 20 seconds left. I mean, you, you can't, you, it, it's, like, um, it's like somebody trying to defuse a bomb in an action movie. How, way more suspenseful than that because you care about the characters. Um, it also occurred to me that if they gave, um, one of the things we like to do on the podcast is, if they gave Mike and I the, the, this job to, to write this film, what would happen? I think that most people would have turned it into a farce. And it could have been a great farce because the setup is perfect, right? Um, but in the movie's funnier in the beginning, I think, the part with the nose spray, the part where he's going through his calendar and try, can you, can you go on Thursday? Can you go on Saturday? Um, it starts, it could start as a farce, but it becomes something much different. It becomes something much better. Yeah, ab absolutely. Um, I was struck just from a narrative perspective this, this time around uh, by how good it is that the, how good the decision to use the voiceover only for the first two minutes is because there's so many people that once they introduce the voiceover they they lean on it or they let it ruin a movie or it's just or it's just bad having jack lemon in those specific lines gets you into the character and gets you moving but then it's dropped once it becomes superfluous right it, which, is, which is the counter thing that i would say to your bit about the end which it which is perfect this is yeah. just this is the ending of die hard 2 and they take down the you know take down the plane and then and then the movie ends that's that yeah. you're exactly right that's it it ends at exactly the right place and every scene is perfect you know like uh, david mamet says somewhere you know you, you go into go into every scene late and leave it early and in every scene it's what does the person want and why can't the person get it i mean that's all drama right but every scene is so perfectly written that way from you know from the first scene where they're trying to get his apartment to when the four guys come in like the sex club and they into his new office and they all, they're all rousing him about that to um every other all the scenes in the chinese restaurant with frederick murray every single scene is i 
want this and I'm gonna try to get it. And there's so, there's so much humor and so much respect for the audience. That's what really strikes me about this movie. There's so much respect for it. When, when the neighbor turns around and says, Mildred, he's at it again. He expects the, the audience to laugh. There's, there doesn't need to be any explanation um, of the joke. His interactions with his landlady are supposed to be funny. There's, it, it, there's such a condensation of jokes, but such trust in the audience to pick up and fire on all cylinders. When he picks the piece of the mirror out of the couch and then later everything is you know, put back together. Um, and then he sees her broken mirror. He's realizing along with the audience and it's it's just firing and there doesn't have to be any more explanation than that. Yeah, you're reminding me of what you said about why you like Beetlejuice so much is that you said it's charming because even when you're not guffawing, you're kind of smiling. And that was my experience of this film is that there's there's not, I mean, you're gonna get more big belly laughs in, a, in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, but you, of course, you don't get the depth of character. You're not supposed to, that's a farce, right? Um, you don't get the depth of character here. Um, and I think that this movie, I was grinning a lot, but there were times when I was really, I was really, you know, emotional and, and, and that, and I think, I think that's so well done. Yeah, and the, the reason is, that the, they put you through the ringer in this movie. And let me just pick out a random moment. The random moment is he's sitting at his desk uh, and somebody needs to, he needs to cancel because he's got a cold and he has to go home. So he's got to cancel. And because he canceled for Wednesday night, he's got to try to move him to Friday. And because he right. moved to Friday, he's got to call the Friday guy. And because he called the Friday guy, he's got to call the, you know, the Monday guy. And that is just so beautifully done that even even as you said this moment that should be farcical yeah. uh, is, is beautiful exposition it's beautiful character from the cc baxter perspective uh and it's it's funny and tense yes yes all right we'll talk about other moments in part two Welcome back. So in part two, we talk about our favorite moments, indicative scenes of the film as a whole. Dan, I think yours is a little earlier than mine. What's your moment? Well, my moment is the very beginning. So it's when uh, he's waiting outside in the opening because he gets back to his apartment. He sees the lights on. He hears the, he hears the Latin music. And his landlady comes out and she says, what are you doing? And he says, oh, I'm just waiting on a friend. Not like Mick Jagger, but like CeCe Baxter. And that is him in the whole movie, or at least 99% of the movie, right? in the whole movie you watch this guy you said you said you get put through the ringer you watch him pretending to be someone that he's not right because even in that scene first of all he has no friends and he wouldn't be waiting he's not out there waiting for one even if he had any friends he has to pretend to be a swinger to dr dreyfus to be this player right um when he's bringing out the booze and he's oh yeah and uh you know laughing about those things he has to pretend not to be bothered about the executives using his apartment he has to pretend that it's all okay it's all fine right he has to pretend to Shirley MacLaine at the end of the movie that he only did these things to get promoted because that's how you rise in corporate America, right? Um, but only at the end of the film does he stop pretending when he throws down the key to the executive washroom. And then of course, when he says, I love you, the reason that moment is so great among many reasons why it's so great is because you know that's what love is. You don't have to pretend anymore. Like you can actually be yourself. You don't have to keep pretending you're someone you're not. And that's how you know they're gonna, that's how you know they're gonna make it because he, he can be totally honest with her and he doesn't have to keep up this, this quasi farcical charade. That's a, gr that's a great moment. And I'll, uh, let me talk about another moment where he gets put through the ringer which is I think the moment where this stops being a farce or the farcical structure falls away. Um, the, the farce being involved is, is that it's a carousel between the four characters getting, you four or five guys getting his key and passing them around. And the moment when he's actually promoted and he goes up to see Mr. Sheldrake 
played by Fred McMurray. And the first part, you know, in, in anything else, I think they would have given uh, Mr. Sheldrake's ca- character even more, a better, funnier, and more over the top than those guys' characters. But he is very down to earth. He's very cool. He is the epitome of all the things they're not. All the guys who are supposed to be so slick are very dopey. Yes. And that's what makes them a good chorus or ensemble. So is C.C. Baxter. But you run into Fred McMurray and he is a heel, capital H. And it brings the movie to a halt. He stops Baxter. He makes him worry about his promotion. He talks about the guy who was running the bookie joint you know, on the 27th floor who got investigated and they, and they swept him out. And he really makes him sweat it before he gets what he wants. And yeah. he is just, he's a person who's different than all the other characters in the film. And he's just sucking the life out of them. Because that's what, that's great. We said about the rest of them are dopey, like Mr. Um, Mr. Kirkaby and the Volkswagen. And I had to take it to a drive. Like they, they all want to be like who Frederick Murray is, but he is very stone cold. You know, like he says an insurance company is built on public trust and that's why I need to use your apartment. And, and the temptation must've been there to make, Fred McMurray into someone like Mr. Bigley and how to succeed in business without really trying, right? Like this farcical, you know, um, buffoonish kind of boss, but he's not like that at all. He's much closer to Don Draper than he is to, uh, you know, a buffoon or something like that. Great. Okay, so part three, we talk about the ending, the big takeaways, the title. Dan, I think you have something for the ending. I once had a professor who made a, 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 um, a side remark in class that I thought was pretty funny. I forgot what book we were even discussing, but he said, well, the orgy is always in the other dorm. And this film is about a guy who the orgy is in his dorm, but it's his job to clean it up. So he doesn't get to participate in all the, the Bacchanal things that we saw in seconds where Rock Hudson goes to the, uh, the grape festival and things like that. It's his job just to be the, the, the custodian of all that and to keep the things moving. What's interesting about that is when he finds the broken mirror and Shirley MacLaine says, he says, she says, I like it that way because it shows me how I feel. And I think how Baxter sees himself is really, really interesting, right? He's a nebbish who becomes a mensch. And that's that in the world of the film, you know, he sees himself through this broken mirror. We see him differently. We're on his side. We, um, our heartbreaks when he's making the dinner and singing about the meatballs, because we know how excited he is that she's going to be there. And he comes back from the market. He goes, look, I have canned asparagus. And she's like, she'd be going. And he's like, no, because he's so, it's such a great portrait of someone who's so lonely. And the girl's finally here and you can't leave. And you're so much on his side. We see him in a different way than he sees himself. But when he throws the key down and he leaves, then, our, then I think our, our visions start to accord because, you know, we're, we're proud of him. He's done something that deserves us being proud of him. And at the end, you know, he's not a taker and he also doesn't get took. You know, he becomes a mensch and we see him as, as kind of a man in full at the end. Yeah, I think what I like about this movie, too, is that it doesn't offer any resolution um, any any financial resolution, which is kind of a holdover from 19th century literature and art. You know, it, if this were a Jane Austen novel, you would find out exactly where C.C. Baxter is going to work after this, or, you know, the doctor would end up having a brother-in-law on in insurance yeah. or something and, and take care of him. Um, but the movie won't support that. The movie will only support uh, sort of one sentimental coincidence, which, as you said, he is extremely lonely, uh, but this would be a, another kind of movie entirely if he were wasting his time on somebody besides Shirley MacLaine. If he were really excited to be home with the girl that picks him up, uh, Mickey, who has her, <laughs> yeah, her the bar. 
you know, and, and he were, if he bought canned asparagus for her, that'd be a different movie. The movie allows him to be, to connect with somebody who's like who he is. And that's sort of, it's one break from realism, but that's all you get. You don't get a, you don't really get a happy resolution, but in, but in, in the sense you do, because she's dealing the, the cards for Jen. Yeah, Hamlet says, right? And art is the job of art. The job of playing is the the function of playing is to hold a mirror up to nature, and this film holds a great mirror up to the nature of human loneliness, and about you know the desire to be loved, the desire to to, to be somebody bigger than you thought you could ever be, and that's what we get to see. That's why I think it's suspenseful. It's um, it's there's parts where it's disheartening. It's really funny, but at the end, it's such a it's such a great great. You feel so good when it's over because of what you've been through with this guy and how you see him at the end. It's also not the best portrait of New York. You know, it's uh, in, in New York when any classic movie, any other classic movie is playing with the setting. Um, there's people walking on the streets. You get great shots of Fifth Avenue. This is the insurance building, the inside of his apartment, the outside stairs of his apartment and him outside the music man alone. And that's, that's the portrait of New York. Yeah. And I think being alone in the apartment creates that sense of claustrophobia that allows us to want somebody to be there with him or for him to escape. And yeah. for so much of the movie, it, it feels like there's no escape, but it becomes a different kind of setting once, once she enters it and, and a different kind of resolution. Yeah, his loneliness is much different in New York City. At, it's much different from what um, um, Dorothy feels, the loneliness she feels in Salina, Kansas. All right, great. That was a great pick, Mike. We hope you've enjoyed our, our show on The Apartment. Please follow us on Twitter at 15MINFilm. Please find our previous episodes if you'd like to hear what we said about other films and let us know what we should watch. Thanks for listening. See you next time.